Welcome to a special bonus edition of Adjust Your Tracking. I'm your host, Eric McClanahan, and just chiming in here real quick at the top for you listeners, just to let you know uh, what the deal is for this episode. Um, So I've just taken two older uh, segments, two older editions of our segment, Hold Up, uh, from the past. In case you didn't know, Adjust Your Tracking has been going on for more than five years now as a podcast, and uh, we've accumulated quite a bit in our archives, um, quite a bit that's still worth releasing from time to time. So because we took a, took a break this week from recording uh, a new episode, I thought I'd at least give you um, some of our favorite chats from the past. So this is going to be a crime movie double feature, crime movies from the 90s specifically, in which me and Joe discuss, uh, in the first half, we're going to talk about uh, the French film La Haine, and then it will be, in the latter half, on to Belly from Hype Williams. So, hope you like this episode, and you will see us back on mic with a new episode next week, so tune in for that. Thanks for listening, gang. Here's the show. I got involved with the film because I really was a fan of Machu Kassavitsa. I uh, had seen another movie of his, Métis. You know, I was so enamored with him. I thought he was so talented. I said, find out what this guy's doing and and uh, let's see if we can get him in to do something. And we started talking about something. He said, well, I just have to tell you, you know, I, I just finished a movie and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be shown at Cannes. And you might want to see that movie before you consider me. Uh, so I got to see Diane and I was just completely blown away. Um, uh, you know, not only had uh, Mathieu moved on to an anticipated level of expertise as a, as a director, but there's a real soul to that film uh, that's about France how it is now, uh, something that Americans certainly don't know, but a lot of French people didn't know either. Let me just explain real quick what Hold Up is. Yeah, uh, we, we might have new listeners now. Let's, let's it's, explain. It's a segment where we take a movie that has... Um, has made an impact on us personally. And it started originally as like movies that kind of, uh, have, have like either a critical backlash or didn't do well in their initial kind of, uh, run. And so therefore have like a problematic history and we don't really understand our own, uh, our own fixation with the movie. So we like present them as, you know, to our critical counterpart to see like how they feel about it and have a discussion of why they made such an impact and why we hold them so dear. Mm. It's become less so about movies that were kind of maligned initially and more so about just like a movie's kind of enduring legacy and how they do hold up. And so um, my pick was from kind of that, that era that we're talking about that sort of like nineties indie art house, like heyday. Um, and it's Matthew Kasovitz. La Ain, which when I rented it at the time was just called Hate. Um, <laughs> Did it say that on the box too? Yeah. Oh wow! On the box, I'm like, <laughs> I'm sold, and he's pointing a gun right at me. I'm in. <laughs> um, and it had a had a co-sign by Jodie Foster, who I think had seen it at a festival and kind of helped usher it into a distribution deal in America. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a French film, and I, it, its initial run came out in 1995. Like by the time I saw it, I think it was 97. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a movie I picked because like it was a huge deal to me when I saw it. And um, 
his preceding movies um, or the movies that he made afterwards like never seem to make the same impact. Like there's such a, a vision at work with Laine that never seemed to be, never seemed to catch on afterwards with movies like Crimson Rivers, which he also used Vincent Cassell for, and Jean Reno, and uh, and then with Gothica, oh which um, I remember like deeply, deeply hating when I saw it. <laughs> um, and I don't think I've checked in after that, but um, yeah, and I haven't seen Babylon AD, but that was really poorly reviewed when it came out. And so, then he yeah, did make a he made a French action movie that I saw at a festival actually uh, years ago called Rebellion, but I kind of forgot all about it as soon as it was sort of um, depressingly mediocre. Was one of those no. things, yeah, yeah, because like with Laine and like there there are other filmmakers that you can kind of lump in with this where there's like such a refreshing vision that their first movie kind of kicks down the door with. And then after that, there's just something kind of, uh, that just doesn't, doesn't add up and doesn't, you know, like there's just, there's, there's something amiss. And, uh, in rewatching La Ain, it was just like, it made me start to think about the, the era that it came out of. And how, because there were so many things in the cultural conversation, Mm. you know, this is a French film, so it's a global conversation, but like in the language of film, there were so many things that were happening at that time. You know, there were like, even though this was probably being made in tandem with, uh, with kids, which came out in 1995, Mm -hmm. like there's elements of that film at work. There's, there's elements of like Scorsese's influences over a lot of the independent films in the 1990s. There's so much Scorsese at work. There's Spike Lee elements in it. And there's like that, that whole kind of like beautiful, uh, groundswell of like African-American filmmakers from the late eighties into the early nineties where it was just like, I think about that time that like how the studios didn't know how to control the interest, how like hip hop had just come out, not just come out, grow up, you know, (laughs) but like it had reached this sort of like height of popularity around like 1986 where it was just like, we don't know how to control this. It's clearly popular despite our lack of representation, like in MTV. So it just like it took on a life of its own. And so when Spike Lee made She's Gotta Have It, you know, a huge independent film, Universal was just like, all right, make what you want. Sure, there's more (laughs) more nuanced stories, the history of this. But as a film like Watcher, that's kind of what it seemed like. Like he made an impact. They didn't know how to control, you know, like the interest. So it's just like, all right, clearly there's an audience for this. So make what you want. And so like movies that sort of like bloomed out of that, like they had an independent feel, even though they had studio money, maybe it wasn't a lot of money, Mm. but it certainly was seen on the screen. Like do the right thing feels like a huge movie. And it came out in the summer and universal was behind it. It's unbelievable, man. Yeah. It's incredible. And I know that we've sang the praises of that movie a lot, but like another movie that, Laine sort of seems to it, it's what well, I didn't realize when watching it originally. Like, there's a lot of juice. Yeah, in yeah, yeah. Which was like a, it, Ernest Dickerson, his feature debut, Spike Lee cinematographer. He made this movie about um, a group of kids growing growing up in Harlem who decide to plan a robbery, and this introduction of a gun into the group 
basically just poisons the well of their friendship and uh, takes over. It takes on a life of its own, yeah. and it's like it's a, such a kinetic movie, and so like it just crackles with life, and it's just like that was, you know, that did really well at the box office. It was just this era where like there was different types of films happening. Mm -hmm. And so those films were all informing each other. And with a movie like La Aine that seems to synergize all of these elements and make something completely unique, you know, like doesn't feel derivative. It doesn't feel like, Oh, here's of course, here's the, even though a scene is directly referencing lines from taxi driver early (laughs) on when we're introduced to Vince, Vincent Cassell's character. Yeah. Um, but there's like it's, this weird twist to it where it's funny because he's kind of a goofball in the scene, you know? Yeah, he's like really hamming it up. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah, there's there's something, there's some tone that this movie magically strikes, which is kind of what makes it sad that he like Matthew Kasovitz didn't come up with something sort of equally visionary. Mm. But it's the it's takes place in a sort of ravaged part of Paris where um riots have been tearing apart this lower income area. And as much as this movie is about race at times, it's also about poverty and how the persecution of poverty. And so it's just all these, it's this multicultural group of friends, but they're all sort of similarly unified under the heat of police that are just like persecuting an area where poor people live. Yeah. And so it's this group of friends after one of their peers has been beaten into a coma by the cops and they're sort of wandering through the course of 24 hours where a gun has gone missing from a cop. And it's, it's about this group of friends finding it as things steadily escalate towards like an inevitable sort of climax with police tension. And like the movie feels, you know, incredibly relevant now. Oh, my Just- God. Dude, watching it, did you even like the line about Donald Trump that someone says? Did did you catch that this this time? <laughs> no, I didn't see it. There's there's a scene. Um, I think it's in the uh, bathroom. It's it's the about halfway through the movie. The these characters go to Paris, so it's like it's a movie of two halves in terms of like uh, its setting. You know, it starts in their their borough, and then then they're in Paris. And I think it's the scene where they're in a bathroom, and some one of the characters goes on a sort of rant. And the uh, one of the other characters like quickly says like what are you Donald Trump or something like that like mm. talk about prescient for right now that's the other thing about this movie you're you're doing a great job of contextualizing the era that it came out in and how we were rife with movies that were highly referential like that and yet this one does synergize into its own style despite all the references but more than anything this movie might be more relevant now in our political climate in the states than. Yeah. And and in Paris, where there's all this, you know, there's been these awful shootings and things like that. And the racial divides might be even, um, you know, scarily stronger even. Or yeah. or it might be even worse of a problem in France now. And that makes this movie, like, more vital. And for a movie to to be, like, so socially and politically, like, strong and, and relevant decades on like that is impressive. But more than anything, I think, um, because I think this Hold Up episode is hopefully going to turn some people onto this movie to see it, if they've never even heard of it or seen it, is that this movie is so blazingly entertaining, man. Like, for all of its social points and things it wants to deal with, you know, issues, it does, it never 
gets didactic about it. Yeah. It's a great movie. It's so cinematic. It is just rife, <laughs> rife with these sequences and moments. Yeah, kind of similar to the the whole like charm of the ensemble with everybody wants some. There's just all these people, and they're such like rich characters and it does what i think do the right thing does what spike lee does with a lot of his movies what martin scorsese beautifully does with like mean streets and goodfellas is they he finds the musicality of bickering and shit talking which so much of this movie is is people overlapping and like it's in french so it's just like i mean there's a whole different kind of musicality to the, the language that's not mine and all these people kind of like getting impassioned and like talking shit to each other and yeah there's like there's a boldness to this movie that's um yeah that's also really refreshing that seems influenced by you know the it seems just as much influenced by uh hip-hop music as it does like with cinema and so there's just these beautiful um like sequences where like at this in 1995 i don't know how they got what looks like a drone shot through Dude, the projects yes. set to a dj mixing live outside of his project window oh, like, it was just like how did they, what the fuck did they fly a kite with a camera on it i don't know <laughs> because it's not a helicopter shot because it's too low you know what i thought of though uh i thought of the film angst uh the austrian film that we talked about last year yeah where they had those insane crane shots like yeah i think they might have had a crane or something like that but i wondered the same thing and for a movie to get you know uh, in, intense movie lovers like you and I to be like, how'd they do that? You know, yeah. like, and to not really know, we could speculate. That's that's movie magic. For this movie to tackle something so urgent in its era, and you know, tragically still as prescient and as urgent with a with a boldness, and never feeling really didactic. Mm. You know, the movie's got a strange surrealistic quality to it. There's like these, the section that you were describing about, you know, where they reference Donald Trump in the bathroom. They're these weird kind of like breaking moments where like all of a sudden someone will kind of wander out and like talk kind of like out of turn with the characters. And I'll be like, who the fuck was that guy? (laughs) The old man in the bathroom? Yeah, the old man in the bathroom or the guy that approaches them when they're trying to steal a car. Yeah, yeah. And like the cow wandering through. And there's just these weird kind of senses of like oddball humor that like another thing that was kind of influencing the indie scene at the time was a filmmaker like Jim Jarmusch, which like the, the black and white photography of the film which this movie, it's gorgeous. Oh it's my God. gorgeous black and white photography. Mm-hmm. And the sort of the, the way he frames shots that art broke it up, where it's just like the three of them sitting all in a row, you know, against, you know, there's a dinosaur playground, you know, uh, just like, you know, there's this like setting of like a dinosaur in the background. And it's like a beautifully staged picture. Right. And like, that feels like, a you know, Jarmushi and the sense of humor sometimes does as well. And so it's just like, all of these elements converging and all these sort of like different tones to communicate something so urgent that like 20 years later is just as urgent tragically. Seriously, politically, socially it is right. And it's still relevant like that. But even another sense of relevancy is something I've I got into in our previous episode. When you announced this as your holdup is that the, the ripple effect in, in, the crime genre, especially in, in like world cinema is like from this film is it's just, it still continues. And, uh, 
I, w- I, I lumped it, this film, with uh, Nicholas Winden reference, first movie, uh, Pusher. Mm-hmm. And, and they're both, like, these new takes on the co- crime genre. I mean, Lahaine, it might not even be fair to, to it might be too reductive, you know, to call it a crime movie. But yeah. I, yeah, you know, I, I thought it, about, it feels like a day in the life movie. Right, right. Or, it's it's actually quite similar to, to Days and Confused in that sense, the sort of 24 hour plotless yeah. scenario, like, and, and Juice, like you said as well. It's a great comparison. But I still think those elements are there and the ripple effects still happen for more outright crime movies like something like A Prophet or Gamora, the the pusher sequels that came. Yeah. Um, all these movies that that have come since is the 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 merging of the social the sociopolitical um, elements, the the worries we have as like, you know, as is people like a lower class of people being treated poorly. It, it, all these things like that that arises that's that's more important now in these crime movies and also it's not about a grand um godfather-esque you know right hi- highly not. yeah it's not about that anymore and i even think the the more modern crime movies that have done the sort of more godfather or even goodfellas like grand story of like i think of like something like ridley scott's american gangster or yeah hell even vincent cassell's um he did a two-part uh, Messrine. yeah, it was about he played a real life French criminal. Man, I love the idea of those movies on paper, but in practice, they they were sort of boringly, uh, I thought, dated. Like even when they came out, it's like ah, this is like old fashioned in a way that I don't think works for me. Right? Yeah, because they they're not yeah they're not pulsing with the life that a movie like Lahaine and the other films in its wake have. I think. Well, I think that because they're trying to like cover too much terrain, they're trying to like get too much of the story. They end up painting with these broad strokes that like a movie like Lain that's concentrated within 24 hours, it's got all this grit, urgency, and energy to it that like isn't broken up. Like it's it's completely lived in, yeah. and it's not like watching a character ten years later, and you're kind of distracted by how bad the makeup is on their beard, <laughs> and you're just like, you know, it, it just takes these broad strokes that kind of remove you from the immersion of the movie, and like a movie like A Prophet, yeah, I feel like there as much as I still think that movie is incredible, the first forty five minutes of that movie is like needs to be its own standalone film because it clips with that urgency with that grit and it's just got like it's this sense of immersion that's not broken up by too much time passing Mm. that you get to see the character like really live moment to moment and like that's what's so beautiful about this film is that you're seeing these characters in the struggle living moment to moment and like even the cops, as removed as you are from them and as monstrous as they seem, you know, not necessarily as like caricature-ish as they are in a film like Straight Outta Compton, but like mm. you you're seeing them as like people moment to moment and like they're 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 people working class people pitted against each other, mm. you know, and like and and real life tragedy sort of like erupts from that. Oh man. The ending of this movie shocks me. Every time, man. Oh, it's it's incredible. Yeah. I've, I've seen this film. I think watching it the other day was like third or fourth time uh, I've watched it. And it just sneaks up on me every time. And it's it it's as close to a perfect ending as I can yeah. think of for a, for a movie like, you know, for this kind of movie. Yeah. Do you remember that this was uh, – we, we were sort of flirting with the idea of uh, having an Adjust Your Tracking Presents like screening series. This was like 
the first one that we sort of narrowed in on. We collectively thought of, I do remember that. Yeah, you know, and it yeah. makes me think that it'd be fun some some way to, to create a, maybe it's a segment or a, something we do where we create like our kind of AYT canon, you know, the canon of great films. Uh, yeah. I, I had referenced how Fight Club and Taxi Driver, I think you and I were just talking about that because I made a new intro music for the podcast and I incorporated dialogue from both those movies because mm-hmm. those are like, those were important movies to us specifically. And uh, yeah, I think it'd be fun to do that because I mean, La Haine belongs in there. I mean, I'm, I don't mind using hyperbole like this. This is one of the great movies of the nineties. I mean, this is one of the great movies for me of all time. It's, it's going to find my way in my personal top movies because it will like a good hangout movie, like a good movie that condenses its, its time period into a day, like, like something like days and confused. It, it has this unbelievable rewatchability to it because it's not, it's not plotless, but there's not a narrative concern to it. So it's a, like it has the vibe of a hangout movie, but yet all these other stylistic, exciting cinematic things, and I can go back to it. I, I want to revisit it to be surprised by it again and again, but also to be like, oh, here's where he uses that shot that like Hitchcock used in Vertigo and Spielberg used in Jaws, where you, you pull the camera back, but you zoom in at the same time. You know, yeah. the, sh- the poltergeist, the hallway. Like, oh, yeah. Trip. Yeah. Good call. Yeah. And it's so gorgeous because of the he's using these reference and these stylistic things that we've seen before and things that he does, you know, sort of his in his own style. But yet they feel fresh, but they're also commenting on the film. That's the best use of camera movements and style, all the cinematic possibilities for even a low budget movie like this at hand for a filmmaker. And he, he like takes advantage at every scene. It's like that maybe, maybe there's something to be said for, um, Kasovitz's directorial career after this is that maybe he just like spent all of his good ideas on this film. You know, it's got that urgency. It's not technically his first feature. He made one a couple years before, right. but it but feels it's the one that broke him basically to like a whole audience. To- and maybe it broke him creatively. Maybe we're getting at that. Like he's also probably been hindered by, you know, we can speculate all we want, but maybe the studio system hindered him and all that. But, uh, it, it's hard to say, but maybe this is just that maybe he just had this one like all timer great movie in him. And I'd say 90% of filmmakers in their life would give anything for one of those movies yeah. and they'll never reach that. So even though we can sort of lament that, like what happened to this guy? Um, I can still be glad I see him pop up as an actor in something like Munich, you know, the Steven Spielberg yeah, film. Or, or Haywire. Oh, yeah, that's right. He was in Haywire, exactly. Or Amelie. He's great in Amelie. I uh, love him in Amelie, exactly. And, you know, he shows up as a uh, as a neo-Nazi. He looks like a character straight out of uh, Green Room, the film we're going to discuss in our next episode. He, he, Matthew, Matthew Kasovitz shows up as a sort of skinhead character in, the, in a, one of the Paris scenes in this movie. And he's a great actor. He's got a great presence. Um, mm. But um, yeah, we can speculate and wonder what happened. But man, we have this movie. This guy made this film and it's always going to make him sort of important to us on this podcast. And I think if, if other people discover it uh, and give it a chance, I think it, it could become important to them as well. It's, it's just that good. Yeah, it, it came out of that sort of beautiful era of, of indie vitality and art house movies. But um, and as much as that feels far away, it still exists. And, uh, you know, you can catch this movie on Hulu because it has a Criterion yeah, Hulu Plus, yep, yep. So you can watch it on Hulu Plus. I have the Criterion DVD. I 
could look it up, but I, I'm not sure if they've released a Blu-ray copy of it, but as soon as they do, I'm probably just going to upgrade to that. But there you go. It's also on Hulu Plus as well. So, I mean, the Criterion thing has some great stuff on it, too. A lot of great features. Um, Is that that talk show that... uh where Cassavitz is wearing like a pot leaf hat. On I it. believe so. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yes, it it's does. It's kind of bratty in it. <laughs> he just was like, it has the spirit of it. This is like a young punks kind of movie, but like yeah. way more intelligent. And he could have never known how, how prescient this movie would be 20 years later. Right. But that's, that's the beauty of making something. It's like lightning in a bottle, you know, and he, he really had it. So um, I, I think it is safe to say this one is beyond, it holds up. It it holds yeah. up very well. I sold my soul to the devil. Price was cheap. It was cold on this level, but it's twice as deep. It's two o'clock, and I'm just about to hit the streets. Until I knock off this rock, I don't get to eat. Sometimes it's like that's the only reason why I hustle. Step on toes, strong arm, and show a little muscle. Ain't no real though. That's why a nigga feels so frustrated. I hate it, seeing bitch niggas that made it. And I'm robbing niggas just as broke as myself. Fucking with queens? Ain't too good for a nigga's health. Where's the wealth? I'm in New York. I got to make my rounds. I do whatever for the dollar. Fuck him. You know me. Tommy Grant. Our second edition of Hold Up. Um, I think it's still fair, Joe, to explain exactly the uh, what this uh, yeah. segment is all about. So Hold Up is about uh, both Eric and I finding movies that we we love yes. in a way that is maybe occasionally conflicting and we've loved for a long time mm-hmm. because they are kind of critically, either, either critically not well regarded or just the public doesn't understand their appeal. Yes. There's, there's just something questionable about them, but yes. we love them regardless in, in this sort of like unbridled way that we have to have, you know, the other person take a look at them to have a critical counterpoint to discuss it. Cause yeah. most of the world will narrow their eyes in confusion <laughs> yes. at our appreciation for these movies. So the last time we did it, my choice was The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. Great, great kickoff to this segment. Eric was very nice. I could sense he disliked it a lot more than he let me believe. But I, this is true. <laughs> but I will say, Joe, I'm glad I watched that movie. Not just to, like, learn. I want to know, you know, like, that's a movie that's important to you. And I yeah. wanted to see that. But I, I didn't hate myself for having to watch it or anything. Or hate the, the time spent. Friend of the show, Nick Bruno, uh, ah. Northwest Film Center um, <laughs> employee. It ended my conversation with him yesterday when I brought it up. He's like, I'm I'm done talking. And I was like, oh, okay. And Nick's a guy that he'll talk. He likes yeah. to talk. So you, he, that's something. That is a dead end for him. <laughs> well, it's not a dead end for me. Okay. I, I was being nice, but I'm glad I saw the film. And so your pick yes, has, you, is Belly. Yeah. And we mentioned it in the last episode to tease it out. So hopefully some people caught up with it or remember the film. 1998. But, uh, 1998. And you know what? I want to start right there okay. with this film. Please. Belly to me is a fascinating film. 
mm-hmm. upon revisiting it, it, it has always been something that I have loved the style of it. Yeah. It is just dripping with style. And when you look at the director, Hype Williams, mm-hmm. very famous for his music videos, specifically yeah. rap videos like Jay-Z videos, things like that. Notorious B.I.G. Yeah, Busta, Busta Rhymes, Rhymes. Some yeah. great Busta Rhymes stuff. Like the videos you remember when Busta Rhymes had his little time. Lots of fish lens. Lots of Yeah, very, very, like... He's a guy that creates his own world in four-minute snippets and videos. Um, But looking at 1998, the the time when Belly comes out. Okay, so we've talked in the past on the show about the early 90s being that sort of kickoff with your Boys in the Hood, Menace to Society, South Central. These A wave of these urban dramas were coming out. Yeah. Some of which starred actual rappers getting a chance to act. Belly really comes in the tail end of that, right? It's almost yeah. done. There's not as much of the demand for those type of films, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Part of which, I think, has to do with what this movie is reflecting. And if you look, as I was watching it last week, catching up with it, I had to immediately Google search, when did Tupac Shakur die and when did Notorious B.I.G. die? 1996, Tupac was killed. 97. And Biggie in 97. Oh, this movie birthday. comes out. Oh, man, really? Yeah. That's sad. It is sad. 98 is when Belly comes out. And to me, the revisiting of this movie, as this movie has problems. It does. But sure. I think it's very poignant in terms of what it's going after. By the end, this movie is trying to, uh, basically is trying to plead to the rap community that, like, it's time to set that shit aside and move on. It literally does. It, it literally it does. you the don't. Uh, be a menace to South Central while drinking your juice in the hood <laughs> moment of message message yeah it's there right yeah. and that's there's the clunky elements of belly that that are like that where it's very like okay or these these yeah. awkward transitions they kind of come out of nowhere but I love the message of belly is that it's time to set this shit aside like people have died and it's like it's yeah. gotten serious now yeah yeah and it's I saw it in the theater oh, okay. in 1990 that would have been amazing and I don't like, know if it was at a theater that I could have seen it at in, at the time in, yeah, in it, Minnesota. It played in the now defunct Springfield Quad in mm. Springfield, Oregon, mm. um, right next to Eugene. Okay. Couldn't even play it in Eugene. And it was like the theater that like was like relegated for the urban movies, even sure. though there wasn't an urban element in either Springfield or Eugene. Um, That's where we'll put those and, movies. Eh, put it in the little one in the Springfield Quad. So New Jack City opened there. Uh, and like, guess, it's yes. interesting that you bring up that point where like, all of the all the the sort of like rise of those movies in the early 90s mm. and like belly was at this intersection before like a lot of rappers would make straight to dvd movies right. like just a, you know like bone thugs and harmony or in a movie that like only went to like straight to video most and, of 50 cents attempts at acting yeah, exactly. have gone straight to video yeah and yeah. so it's at this like threshold where it's like that's about to happen and then like the that it's notable that rappers are trying to be actors is mm. like it, it's it's no longer a novelty right and so right. like the discoveries of Tupac being like incredible in Juice and Ice Cube being like in, like really effective and heartbreaking in Boys in the Hood yeah yeah in addition to being hilarious like, yeah, yeah. His, he's got a great performance in that movie he's very good but so like you have DMX and Nas mm-hmm. in like the the main role roles of this film mm. DMX is uncontainable in his energy. Yes, and so, he like, is. He will be interesting as that, as the kind of live wire 
Nas. I've like it was just it was interesting to come back to this movie because I was. remember leaving it and liking it mm-hmm. and being like and sort of taking that last message and being like that's good that's yeah. good that like that that was communicated but rewatching it and just being you know seeing a lot of the movie is gorgeous oh, like my God. gorgeous and. But so much of it is like it's not held together. Yeah, it's not held together with a single convincing performance. <laughs> like I, I believe DMX is is uh, excitable. Yes, but it's got like, energy. But the the exchanges between the two are so first rehearsal it's that absolutely. it's just like you're like what would it what would have happened if. Hype Williams took his directorial debut or any film after that, which he hasn't made one. Yeah, and was given a script, yeah. and he could sh- he could use all of those elements that are just like eye poppingly stunning. God, man. yeah, and for for something that's like convincing and dramatically involving, mm. and isn't just like a, a weird sizzle reel of like hot moments and it's just like but still the movie exists in this like alternate realm yes. where you can just let it wash over you and like as much as I, I wished I was like dramatically invested in it it still like has this hypnotic power to it it really really does yeah and I guess like the the, the flaws that I can pinpoint in the movie is that like it doesn't it doesn't really have a sense of humor even though he has a visual sense of humor yes like yes. there will be cues where it's like Tyron Turner is in the movie who plays Kane in Menace to Society. Right, right. He's a, a Midwestern drug dealer when the main character is like kind of out of nowhere after their heist masters decide to become drug dealers. <laughs> in middle America. Yeah. yeah. And there's just like, eh, we decided to be drug dealers. And it's like, all right, this is the dream logic that the movie operates under. Yes. So he, Tyron Turner, is a, a drug dealer who essentially looks like Daria. <laughs> From Beavis and Butthead. Yeah, and his first scene, I believe, is he is just like eating he a is banana, filleting a banana, sloppily. <laughs> and like I love his line, I requote all the time. I don't like that shit. I don't like that shit. Yeah. I don't like that I'm shit. Drop a dime on them. Yeah. <laughs> there's like that cue that you're like, all right, he knows when shit is funny. Mm-hmm. And there's also like a scene where Nas is talking to what's arguably a small child who's a drug dealer. Yes. Who like, went to jail, the kid is describing. Yep. And it's like, he, the kid, who like is most likely in the script or whatever or original kind of like idea of the movie, is mm. probably like 13, 14. Uh, but he looks, he looks like he's eight years old. Right, right. And so it's just like, that's a bold choice. And if there was like a kind of functioning satirical element, there could mm. be like a kind of through line of black comedy in this. Right, right. There would be, that would be something that could gel the movie together and actually make it like a legit, I think, really strong film. Yeah. I think if you had that sort of a satirical edge or a more overtly comedic element to it to yeah. counter what is a very serious movie. Yeah. Which sometimes to its detriment in terms of like where it goes. Yeah. Um, I, I think you're right. And I, I would love, because Hype Williams wrote this script, I think, as well. Yeah. He's credited as the writer. Man, I would love to see him make another feature and get a really good script, like a strong script. Like, um, I, I guess something like, I always thought John Singleton was a pretty strong writer mm-hmm. in terms of like the stuff he's written for his films. If you could merge those two together or, I don't know, shit, give him a Charlie Kaufman skip, script or something and just see what Hype Williams could do, you yeah. know, would be really interesting. Um, but I think you've touched on it that this movie still works for me though because it is in a dream it creates its own world yeah where hitmen 
or hit women, you know, hit, uh, uh, assassins. Hit people. Hit people. They, one of them comes out of Jamaica later in the film, and it's this woman who is dressed with, like, leather clad. She has to put on her she, fucking She came out of the Busta Rhymes video, essentially. She totally like, did, right? Put your hands where my eyes can see. Like, she just popped out of that video. She's right there. Exactly. And into this film. So, it's... Most people, and I think that's why this movie either has zero reputation or the people that have seen it or know it kind of, like, laugh at it or just yeah. forget whatever, is that you can't get on the wavelength of this bizarre world that's being shown to you because it's not the real world. Yeah. But I love that it 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 does that. It's like this fucking outfit that this assassin has to put on to go kill people like why would you do that <laughs> which like the whole Jamaican sidebar yep, yep. S- I want to call it a subplot like yeah it's it's a yeah it is its own contained story that essentially goes nowhere nowhere and you just like it concludes mid movie and you're like wait what the fuck well what it does is it gives you the scarface ending for the Jamaican drug deal you know it gives you that who himself is not really necessary to the movie no 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 not at all other than he is a very uh, exactly and I think there's a lot of unnecessary elements of this movie but what what doesn't hold it together but makes it work is he's so fascinating yeah I've never seen that kind of guy on screen before all right so I think I brought this up. Maybe maybe it didn't actually wind up on the episode where we <clears throat> reviewed Spring Breakers. Right, right. But, like, there's a... After the first heist of the movie, which is incredibly, like, well executed. From inside the car. The, the opening of the movie, yeah. <sighs> they, they go... They retreat to... Um, DMX's characters, uh, Buns, I right, believe is his name. Right, right. His, yeah, his estate, Buns. which is impossibly nice, and he puts on Gummo. Right. Yes! Oh, right, right. He puts on Gummo. I'm glad you brought this up. And so, like, that always stuck out to me, because I knew what Gummo was at the time. I think it came out, like, that same year. Which is, okay, yeah, super interesting that it would appear yeah. in this movie. So he, his, Hype Williams' interest... Because he he was interested in like it wasn't a knock against Harmony Kareen or Gummo. I didn't he was it fascinated that way, yeah. by that movie. Uh-huh. So he's like, check this shit out. This yeah. is what DMX says and puts it on, and they're like, what the fuck, <laughs> fuck is this? Yeah. And so like, it has like Gummo in like that period of Harmony Kareen's work has like a similar sensibility, you know, where it's uh-huh. just like it becomes fascinated with characters. The characters may not be a part of a plot that ultimately pays off in the traditional sense, definitely. But it's vignettes. It's weird, just like hallucinatory collages of images. Yeah. And then I thought Spring Breakers was kind of an answer to Belly because yeah. it, it had the same pop, like, kind of neon look to it. Yeah, yeah, it does. And it's like a group of kids <clears throat> who probably were influenced by watching that movie. Right, so right. girls you, fascinated with uh, video game culture and music video culture. Totally, yeah. That's, you could see the, the four girls in Spring Breakers having seen Belly in their dorm room or in high school, more yeah. likely, before they got to the point, or even younger, where it would be one of those movies that would inspire them or that they would want to ape in in their lives and and do. That's a really awesome link to make there. And I I think it is definitely no accident that like he specifically puts Gummo there, especially I didn't realize that they were so closely like released around the same time, but that sounds right. Yeah, I think Gummo is maybe 97, but still like when he was shooting Belly, it had to have just come out. Yeah. And uh, to put that in this film, that is... um, it's I don't know. It's it is a very interesting link, and I think it does clue you into what Hype Williams was maybe going for. Where it's like it doesn't have to all connect. It's just right. moments, yeah. and he ups the style like even more so. I mean, 
you you bring up the way uh, DMX's house is shown. It's like almost all white. It's like a mm-hmm. monochromatic thing, except for the bedroom, which is all blue. Exactly. Yeah, very Michael Mann blue tinted mm-hmm. in a lot of scenes. There are a lot of filters and tints to each sort of sequence of this movie. And Vaseline on people's faces. Oh my God, the sweatiness of the people. But yeah. that's a hype Williams thing, right? Sure, like his yeah. music videos, everybody's sort of glistening, mm-hmm. right? I like the way that that looks visually but it, it's one of those things you're like why is like DMX's girlfriend just like glistening with sweat all the time Yeah, but she's it, it also makes her look like a like a Barbie doll in a weird sort of mm-hmm. way and I think that's what he's going for because that's kind of all she is for so much of the film um, whether or not it's like a commentary on that I don't know but god it's like he it's so much of the film is right stylistically whether it works thematically almost doesn't matter sometimes well it's also interesting that this movie came out in 1998 yeah. it is set in 1999 right. which is the very not so distant future at the time it's sort of linked to strange days in that way where it's got this like the new yeah. millennium is coming especially the conclusion in yeah. Times Square when like the, the confetti is falling and mm-hmm. stuff like that mm-hmm. but it like the millennium preoccupation in the last five years of uh, even Buster Rhymes said there's only five years left in 1995. <laughs> the extinction level event. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's right. So, like, it. I mean, it had, it was introducing, it had that sense of detachment. Because if it was, like, depicting right then and there, it would have been about 1998. Right. But it was like, no, this is next year so it was it was supposing what was going to happen so it had that level of detachment yeah, and yeah. kind of the and fantasy at work yeah it's like it's like a weird yeah fantasy um or, or like quasi science fiction movie because it's in the future from yeah. when it was made that it's an odd choice yeah it's an interesting kind of like it, as opposed to a lot of the the other kind of urban films, the Menace to Societies, the Juice, the Boys in the Hoods, like it was, it was detaching itself and focusing on the fantastical more yeah. that was like what today is like. Yeah, and I like that because those movies, the Boys in the Hoods, South Central, Menace to Society, the really the big ones, and even the smaller films from that era, were trying to be more traditional dramas in mm-hmm. some cases melodramas right yeah. so it was it was as if it was a way for these black filmmakers these black voices to get out there and be accepted into the film community right. and what i like is by the time belly comes around when hype william gets an opportunity he's just like full on like let's just let's like be abstract let's be weird let's not make sense let's be goofy at yeah. times and it can come off like that. And I like that he sort of puts himself out there and a lot of people either forgot about this movie or just rejected it for those reasons. Well, but it's, it's what I find fascinating. It's in that about. limbo where yeah. it has like the – like w- what Spring Breakers ultimately pulled off. Mm-hmm. Like it has this pop appeal. So it doesn't have the kind of traditional look of an artsy movie. Yeah, yeah. It's got like the, the kind of MTV-ready imagery, but a sensibility that's kind of fragmented. Yes, you yes. Know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, I mean, shit, the, the Belly has... It can look like a Kubrick film sometimes. Like the way DMX's building, is sh- his house is shot, or the scenes where DMX goes to visit the Jamaican drug dealer, to me are like out of Eyes Wide Shut. Like, it's like, was yeah. Kubrick watching this film before he shot Eyes Wide Shut? Because the long tracking shots, the way he makes use of a, of not a full wide frame, like the 185, mm-hmm. so I'm getting techie and geeky, but like, he can really show off the like height of yeah. these things. Like, 
it's it's beautifully framed in that way, and, and like some of the some of the action sequences, <sighs> like uh, when the when the drug house is raided in the Midwest, and like a character is introduced as like one of the main players mm. who's like killed. Spoiler alert! But <laughs> people like, die in this movie. <laughs> yeah, like that sequence is so beautifully shot, where the car just like veers off and smashes into a, yeah. a parked truck. Yep. And it's just like it's the I, actor that played Weebay in The Wire. Actually, yeah, very yeah. good actor. Yeah. A, yeah, he's he's he, he's a loose cannon on The Wire. Right, he's a loose cannon. Yeah, he's one of yeah Adrian. Uh, he's one of Barksdale's guys, like right hand man, basically. Yeah. So like that that sequence, like I just that's when I started to think about like oh that was so beautifully shot. Like mm-hmm. I wish I cared more about that character. Exactly. You, you don't. And like rewatching the trailers after I like watched the movie in its entirety. Like it, the the trailers are incredible because mm. you're just watching the imagery basically and exactly, uh, yeah. some some of DMX's dialogue like you gonna bust your gun to get it <laughs> you know and like and you're just like what imagining the narrative that would complement all of these images but then just ultimately accepting like it it's a unique movie and it it's is. not it's not a failed narrative it's a like. It's an interesting experiment. It really is. It feels more like an experimental movie because it also lets this sort of criminal aspects. Like, we know the arc of this kind of movie. Yeah. So... But it it's, doesn't give you the traditional arc. That's very true. It does not. It it does with the Jamaican drug dealer in sure. terms of the Scarface sort of yeah, ending yeah. for him. But you're right. That's not what the movie is ultimately interested in. Yeah. And I think even though it's extremely clunky and almost out of left field by the end where uh, there is a character, uh, a cop finds DMX and wants him to assassinate a priest character who apparently has all like of this. Farrakhan type. Exactly. You know? Right. And and they it's it's. That's the movie hangs all this on on like icons and things that we can be familiar with without mm-hmm. actually doing the work, right? So when DMX goes to actually kill this guy, what follows is both beautiful but completely out of nowhere. Like how did this happen? It's introduced so last minute that it can't feel like a payoff. Although Nas is reading his book earlier, like that's the only seed that's planted. Right, right. But otherwise you're just like Huh? Like, yeah. All of it, there's n- zero build to the movie. Zero build. You're just, like, hopping from moment to moment. And, like, in that way, it, like, I it, there's zero build in Gummo. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's, uh, that, that is the ultimate clue, I think, for the kind of movie you're, you're just, get. like, kind of hopping from vignette to vignette. And it's just, like, you're letting it sort of just, like, wash over you the entire time. Exactly. And what Hype Williams relied more on a very common genre, the, the gangster genre, to let you maybe get through those moments that haven't been built. Whereas Gummo mm-hmm. kind of just leaves you hanging. It's like, what do you, what kind of movie do I describe that as? You know? Yeah. You, you're left more without, like, a life preserver, right? Yeah. In, in Gummo. Whereas Hype Williams is is hanging it on familiar things, mm-hmm. but yeah, none of the work has been done to get you there, and it's it's right. fascinating. But also, the movie could be almost a masterpiece if it had a good script, and if if it wasn't with those sort of first rehearsal type performances. Because yeah. you mentioned DMX, he's got the energy. Nas drains the film of energy. He's super monotone. Super monotone. And then you look at who plays his wife in the film, T-Boz from TLC. I mean, her scenes can be painful because you're like, this is just a rehearsal, right? Like, there's a scene where she's talking with DMX's girlfriend and you're just like, this feels like the rehearsal. Girl, you don't need this in your life. Yeah, they're they're, they're like sort of mumbling, sort of, it feels as if they're going over the lines the way it's being read. It's so strange. And I would love to know why Hype Williams would just go with that. Like, did he have such a low budget? Maybe he didn't have enough film to shoot on? I, I... 
I'm so curious about the making of this movie. Or just, yeah, just like that, like his his experiences of shooting music videos and yeah. so he figured like that stuff would just work itself out he knows that these people are interesting people right. he's like he's talked to them on a personal level yeah. he knows T-Boz he knows yeah. he knows Nazir that's yeah. not his name very good um, Method Man who shows up in this movie yeah who's he fun br- he brings some humor much needed I mean probably Tyron Turner in addition to the mm. the actor who plays the kind of Farrakhan role like yeah. those are the most competent performances in the movie agreed agreed yeah and it's all the other rappers seem to be struggling with this opportunity yeah but Hype Williams also doesn't do them any favors by taking the, the, the cuts that right. he uses. They're not even necessarily struggling. They're just not aware it's going to come off as flat as it does. There you go. That's a good way to put it. And again, that's sort of what Kubrick would do in his lot of mm-hmm. movies where like you'd get these very monotone performances. And it happened more and more as Kubrick yeah. became – like as Kubrick took longer between films, this was a thing that happened more and more. Yeah. He used Peter Sellers early in his career and those movies are alive with like acting and yeah. performance and – you know, George C. Scott as well in something like Dr. Strangelove. But by the time you get to 2001 and onward, right. the, the life gets sort of drained from these characters to fit his worldview. Now, is that what Hype Williams was going for? I, I don't know. Yeah. But it, ultimately, it's a shame that the guy, 20-some years later almost, yeah. has not been allowed to, to do it again. Or yeah, hasn't that, that limbo that he exists in is really unfortunate because you have someone like who came up in the same kind of camp and was nowhere near as notable, I think, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of their music video work, but Antoine Fuqua, right, who, right. who went on to do uh, his first movie, was Replacement Killers, mm-hmm. has kind of like... It, it's got a loose narrative and it's mostly just a sizzle reel of imagery. Right, right. And... It's not. It's not a strong narrative, and it's kind of like, oh, it's good. Good start. Good demo reel. <laughs> and then he, his probably his best movie is because of the script is Training, Training Day. Day. Yeah, yeah. And like both he and David Ayer, who wrote the script, like those are their. That's their best movie. Yeah. Like yeah. and if Hype Williams, I either want him to find in like an equal script, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or just go so far into the abstract yeah. that like. You, you just don't feel the tug of needing a narrative. You're yeah. just sort of like, whoa, this is insane. Like, Because he could kind of create like an enter-the-void-level spectacle. I seriously agree. I think he belongs more in the Harmony Kareen, Gaspar Noé ballpark. And maybe and that probably is a safe assumption as to why he hasn't had another film come yeah, along. Because he was just like marginalized. Yeah. Whereas Fuqua was a much more traditionalist type yeah, of guy. Absolutely. And he's making movies like one of the worst films I saw last year, The Equalizer. It's mm-hmm. it's terrible. I've heard good arguments that it's a fun, bad movie, and I will say I laughed my ass off watching sure. that movie um, and enjoyed it in that way, but it's terrible. It's, yeah. it's like, embarrassingly bad, <laughs> um, I would argue. So it's it's just a shame because Fuqua has just continued to work and Hype Williams is just doing what he's doing. Um, yeah. I, I want to see Hype Williams. I want to see him back in cinemas. That would be exciting. Can you hear us? Can you hear us? Please, please. The Springfield Quad is no longer open, but um, we, we'll, we'll find you somewhere. We'll find you somewhere to play. Um, exactly. So, um, yeah, I guess 
Belly is a movie that we still appreciate in mm-hmm. a way, and we we don't need to feel shame or anything for liking it. And I would argue people try to find it out there. Um, it's it's available. I watched it on YouTube. You can rent it for like three bucks, high def. There. Hulu Plus, you can watch it. It's it's available, and it's worth revisiting as a very interesting sort of like uh, a secret success to use that uh, the thing from Nathan Rabin's column on uh, I think it was the Dissolved, but the AV Club where year he of flops, the year of flops yeah. thing. This to me is a secret success despite all of its problems you know mm-hmm. it's a movie that I don't feel bad for liking yet I sort of will have to defend every time I bring it up and I'm, yeah. I'm proud to because there's enough there there's there's things going on it's a unique enough film in its genre and and in what it is that it deserves to be dealt with yeah and reckon with it